The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Okay, we're, we're in Mark, so if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and we're going to read from verse 21. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jarius came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hand on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? I see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and, and yet you can ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jarius, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. For they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithakum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone know, let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's uh, come before God in prayer. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you again for, for these familiar accounts and, and for, the, um, for these miracles that took place uh, 2,000 years ago, for, the, um, for what it meant back then and what it will mean for us today. Father, we pray once again that you would speak to us, make this fresh to us, and make us look like your Son. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of John's Gospel, he, he says uh, that if all the miracles that Jesus performed were written down, the world, the world would not have enough room for the books that would be written. That's a wonderful piece of hyperbole, isn't it? Uh, I think Mark has already said something very similar in his Gospel. Uh, he, he said that crowds have come to Jesus. Crowds have come to Jesus and he's healed them. In other words, I don't have room here to tell you about all the miracles that Jesus performed. I just don't. But you need to know that there were crowds and that he healed them. In other words, I'm only going to tell you about a select few number of miracles in any particular detail. And what are the 
miracles that Jesus ha uh, Mark has carefully selected for us? Well, let's just quickly review them. Uh, Jesus has driven out a demon from a, uh, from a man who was demon-possessed. He has healed Peter's uh, mother-in-law who w had a very high fever. He has healed a man with leprosy. Jesus has healed a man who was a paralytic. Jesus has calmed the storm. He has driven out legion. And now he's about to heal a woman who has been bleeding for 12 long years. And after that, he's going to go to and, and raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Wow. Well, there are, I think, two extreme responses and reactions to these miracles in, in the Gospel of Mark or in any of the Gospels. On the one extreme end, there is the complete and utter rejection of anything that smacks of the miraculous in the Gospels. Um, I, I remember reading uh, the Bible with a, with a friend many years ago. This is back in England. And uh, this, this friend, was, he, he wasn't a, a Christian. In, in fact, this guy had no church background whatsoever. This guy had never stepped foot inside a church and had no intention of doing so. He was an atheist. And, and here I was. I was a brand new Christian, you know, maybe, I don't know, a couple of months into this, uh, if that. And, and here I was, this brand new Christian and this atheist, and we're reading the Bible together. And uh, we come across the miraculous and immediately, the words just spew out of his mouth. He goes, well, this is complete nonsense, isn't it? Uh, once again, unfortunately, that is the polite translation of what he actually said. Right? Because it, cause it, cause that's how strongly he felt about it. Right? This, is, this is complete nonsense. Right? And, and of course, I understand that that's not the majority view here on a Sunday morning. But that is the majority view of the Western world in the 21st century. It just is. And I think... I think that we would be doing the church a disservice if we were to preach all the way through Mark's gospel, right? Look at miracle after miracle after miracle. All the ones I just mentioned and then all the ones that are yet to come. You know, there's still more miracles to come in Mark, right? If we were to look at all those miracles and not once, so never so much as acknowledge the culture around us which looks at this and says, well, the miraculous can't happen, so we know this doesn't happen. Now, there's all sorts of things that have gone into shaping a culture to look at the world this way. Um, for example, that there are some philosophical objections to the possibility of the miraculous that have been put forward, that have taken root, that have taken grip of our culture. That, on the other hand, you might say, well, no, no, you're, you're, that's a little bit too cerebral. You're intellectualizing it too much. There are, there are all sorts of emotional reasons, right? There are all sorts of emotional reasons why, why people might want to uh, say we live in a closed system that God doesn't intervene in. That, 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 that there are emotional reasons to say that to, to perhaps of try and avoid the possibility of the miraculous so that we can avoid the possibility of God. I think you know people of both stripes, right? Both kinds of people, the, the people who intellectualize it, the people with the emotions. Then again, the... the, the the culture that, that so exalts emotions and feelings above all else and says, look, if it feels good, do it. Just do what you feel like, right? Uh, that culture itself has been, shaped by, has been shaped by certain philosophical trends. So now we're back with philosophy. So, so which is it? is it? Is it philosophical? or Is that the issue? Or is it emotional? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, isn't it? Now, you'll be pleased to know that even though I have edged towards that precipice this morning, I'm not going to jump off. We're not going to rehearse the philosophical arguments for and against the possibility of the miraculous this morning. Some of you look disappointed, like two of you, you know. And, and, and so, so, so we're not going to do that, not because I don't think that's worthwhile, but because I don't believe it will bring us in view of what Mark would have us see. 
Look, you, you may be an atheist here this morning. You, you, may, you may be sitting there thinking, I can't wrap my head around this miraculous stuff. I, I just don't, don't get it and I don't believe it. And, and perhaps we could settle that question for you this morning at a philosophical level or at least open you up a little bit to the possibility of the miraculous at a philosophical level. But uh, that is still, what I'm saying is that's still not going to bring us in view. That's still not going to allow us to engage with the announcement that Mark is making. Okay, so, so that's one extreme response. On the other end, there's this other extreme response to, to this. One is to reject the miraculous. The other is to become almost obsessed with the miraculous, demand that this should be every day, all the time, that this should be a constant thing, and, and that this should be normative for the Christian life. That's another extreme response. In fact, some have gone as far as saying as, as, uh, that if you, don't, if you don't see this constantly, all the time, then you don't have faith. Or if you do, you don't have enough faith. Or you don't have the right kind of faith. You're either lacking the right quantity of faith, you're lacking the right quality of faith. How many good friends have beaten themselves up over that over the years? Now, I, I think that's easy for the t- TV evangelist with his Rolex watch and his fleet of luxury cars to say that kind of thing, right? Hey, I can say that kind of thing easily as I live in my own luxury. But I have friends, close personal friends, who have risked everything who have literally risked their lives for the gospel, to see the gospel extended, to see the kingdom extended, to see Christ's name made famous in this world. They've risked their lives. They have that kind of faith. They have that kind of faith. And and yet, some of those friends have not seen much in the way of the miraculous. They haven't. You see, I I think the people who demand that life with God should just be one miracle after another, um, well, reality very rarely lines up with that particular vision for life. And their version of following Jesus ends up being this very erratic journey going from one, almost, but not quite miracle, to another. I've seen good friends do this, and they have hurt themselves, and it's been painful to watch. I'm not suggesting, I don't want you to mishear me, I'm not suggesting that Jesus doesn't perform the miracles today, that Jesus doesn't heal today. I, I can point to the miraculous. I can do that too. But I don't believe that pointing to the miraculous today is going to bring us in view of what Mark would have us see. You see, the trouble with both of these approaches, the one that rejects the miraculous altogether and the one that becomes obsessed with the miraculous, is is that both of these approaches rip. They rip these accounts, these miracles, out of their narrative context in which they are set and in which they make sense. And and Mark instead invites us instead to step into his narrative world, to step into the narrative world of the text and, and the narrative world in which the text itself was written. Uh, let me put this up on the screen to, to make it a little bit, bit clearer. The narrative world of the text, uh, in this particular case, is Mark's gospel, right? This is just simply to say, look, this is, this is, how's Mark telling his story? How's Mark telling his story? How has he uh, developed the plot line? How has he cl- carefully selected those scenes? And how has he carefully and lovingly placed those scenes alongside each other? That's the narrative world of the text, the narrative world of Mark's gospel. But then there is the narrative world in which the text itself was written, in which Mark's gospel was written. And that is, of course, first century Judaism. And it's this narrative context, right, this, this nest of context, which gives each one of these miracles, and I don't know which is your favorite miracle, P- pick one. Is it, is it the calming of the storm, the driving out of legion? Is it this woman with the bleeding? Is it the, is it the girl who's going to be raised from the dead? Or do you want to go further back? Or for, pick your favorite miracle. It is this narrative context which gives each of those miracles their shape and their meaning. If, you, if you're still not unsh- a little unsure as to what I'm on about here, let, let me expand on that outer circle for you for, for the moment. The narrative world in which the text is written. You know, you know all of us, have 
songs and, and we, have, we have stories and we have symbols which shape the way we experience reality, which shape the way that we see ourselves as a people and shape the way that we relate to the world around us. Let, let me give us some of the songs and symbols and stories for, from our own um, narrative world here, here in America. Um, sea to shining sea. I'm proud to be an American. Four score and seven years ago, all men were created equal. The American dream, the huddled masses, Lady Liberty, the Stars and Stripes, the Lincoln Memorial, the Liberty Bell. Uh, these are some of the symbols and stories uh, and, and pictures that, that shape the way that we experience the world around us. So some of you are sitting there kind of like, oh, what's this Brit talking about our cultural symbols for? Um, okay, hold, hold on. If that's what you're feeling, hold on to that feeling because that's going to be helpful in a moment. That, that's going to that's be helpful. Um, all of us have, have these symbols and, and stories and songs which shape the way that we experience reality, shape the way we see ourselves in the world and relate to the world around us. Israel also had their own powerful pictures and images that, that shaped the way that they experienced reality, their own songs, their own symbols, their own stories that shaped the way they saw themselves and, as Israel and the world around them. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take just one of those pictures I want to take one of those images, admittedly one of the more disturbing images, certainly one of the most vivid, more troubling images that formed part of Israel's narrative world. Just one of them. And to do that, we're going to jump into Ezekiel chapter 37. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, the prophet Ezekiel is shown this valley of dry bones. This, this valley, he says, is filled, literally filled with human remains. It's very dark. And it's a very macabre scene, but it's filled with human remains. And so what he sees is he sees, looks through this valley is he sees death. But more than that, you know, humans bury their dead. We bury our dead, right? But, but, um, but within Judaism, you were supposed to bury your dead within 24 hours. If you go to Jerusalem today, I believe that it's still the case where for the sanctity of the city, you're supposed to bury the dead within 24 hours. If someone is left unburied like these human remains that... Ezekiel was looking at, uh, they are considered cursed. They're considered under a curse. So, as he looks through this valley, Ezekiel sees death and he sees cursing. But more than that, he also sees, you see, if, if someone were to touch a corpse, this was considered unclean, right? Unclean. And so if you were to come in touch with these human remains or a corpse, then you were now contaminated. Now you were ceremonially, ritually Unclean. So as he looks through this valley, he sees death, he sees cursing, and he sees uncleanness. And, and so God shows him this very dark and macabre scene. And, and then he hears, then he hears this, this, these very chilling words. Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. And if you didn't feel the chill there, let, let, let me just translate that for you and, and imagine it was this. Son of man, these bones are the people of America. Now, now you feel the chill, right? Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. These, these bones, this valley of dry bones, this valley of death and cursing in, and uncleanness is a picture, it's a picture of Israel, a picture of Israel in exile, in exile and cut off from God, cut off from their land and cut off from each other. Can, can, can you imagine? I mean, just, just put yourself in Ezekiel's position for a moment. 
imagine that he, God shows you this valley of dry bones and you know. I mean, you know in the most visceral way that this is us. This is not exactly see to shining sea stuff, is it? This is not four score and seven years ago. Right? This, isn't, this isn't Lady Liberty and, and uh, the American dream, certainly not. This is not the narrative world of America, but it was the narrative world of Israel. And this is just one of the pictures that formed part of their narrative world that, that shaped the way they experienced their reality. It, it is part of, one of the pictures that gave narrative shape to their situation through the centuries, including their first century where they found themselves under the boot of a foreign occupation and with an absentee God. Now, armed with this uh, single picture that formed part of Israel's narrative world, let's join Jesus. So, so Jesus is on his way to the synagogue ruler's home, Jarius. Jarius has thrown himself at Jesus' feet and he's saying, Lord, you've got to come, um, my daughter is dying. She's very sick. In fact, she's so sick, she's about to die. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her. And so Jesus is making his way to Jairus' home. And as he does, the crowds are following and they're pushing and shoving from all directions because they're excited. They want to see what, what Jesus is about to do next. This is, this is really exciting uh, for them. And, and so they, want to, they don't want to miss any of the action. And, and in this crowd, there is a, a woman who has been bleeding for 12 long years. Bleeding for 12 long years. And, and so this woman um, has gone to several doctors, Mark says, but they're probably charlatans and snake oil salesmen because her, she's got worse. They've done more harm than good. And who knows how much money she's forked over during the years and, and how often her hopes were raised only to be dashed to the ground again. How, who knows how often that had happened. And, and so this woman comes and she says to herself, if I can just reach out and touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Now, the physical toll of this was, was terrible. I mean, she, she, bleeding for 12 years, she would have been anemic. I mean, she was probably doubled over in pain or, or at least doubled over through the weariness of those long 12 years. The physical toll was terrible, but the social ramifications were even worse. You see, you and I, we see a sick woman, right? What Jesus would have seen was a woman in social exile. That's right. He would have seen a woman in social exile because she was ceremonially, ritually unclean. Ceremony, and this is not a small point here. In fact, this could be the point of, of this. She was ceremonially, ritually unclean, which, which meant that the pious would have avoided her. More and more people would have avoided her. Through the years, she would have become increasingly isolated and cut off. She, she would have been outside the camp, always outside the camp, always never really a fully participating member of Israel, of her community. Cut off. You know, the only time I've seen someone personally sent into social exile was when my wife, uh, when she became a Christian. So you, most of you know the story, right? She used to be a Jehovah's Witness. When, when Julia, before Julia became a Christian, she was a Jehovah's Witness. Then she starts following Jesus as her Lord, her King, her Savior. And, and when she started following Jesus, all her Jehovah's Witness friends, which were most of them at that time, cut her off. They, they stopped talking to her. They stopped taking her calls. When they saw her coming in the street, they would turn the other way. I mean, they, they, they do it so, so that she knew exactly what was going on. They cut her dead. Her friends cut her dead. Her own mother stopped talking to her for over, well over a year. A social exile, right? So, so this woman was in a place like that. And, and in her desperation and in faith, it's an interesting combination, isn't it? That desperation and faith at the same time. You ever, you ever been there? 
in her desperation and faith, she reaches out, she touches the hem of his garment, and she's healed. The bleeding stops. And Jesus stops. And he says, who touched my clothes? And the disciples are looking at him saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> that this crowd's pushing in from every side. Are you really going to be asking this now? But Jesus won't let it go. He said, no, someone touched me. I felt power go out for me. Who touched my clothes? Now, imagine you're driving an ambulance, breakneck speed, because you're answering a 911 call, right? It's, it's, an, it's an emergency. The person's in critical condition. You've got to get there on time. And, and so you, you're driving at breakneck speed, sirens wailing, lights flashing, then you suddenly pull over and slam on the brakes. And the disciples are like, come on, let's keep it moving here, because, because if we don't, the girl's going to be dead before we get there. That's where this... But Jesus won't let it go. He says, no, someone touched me. Who touched my clothes? And so he stops, and he's waiting for someone to come forward. And realizing she's been found out and that she can't hide this, knowing what had happened to her, she, she comes forward and Mark says she was trembling. Can you imagine? And um, she tells Jesus her story. Now, now Jesus, Jesus could have let this woman touch the hem of his garment and, and then disappear into the crowd. He could have done that. He could have let this woman touch the hem of his garment and walk away healed, physically healed, and disappear into the crowd. But he won't let her do that. Instead, he forces this encounter. You, you see, after 12 years of bleeding, after 12 years of social exile, of 12 years of isolation, 12 years of being cut off, this encounter with Jesus is not just about the physical healing, but this, this is an act of restoration. This is an act of restoration. This is a declaration that she belongs to God, that she is indeed a daughter of Israel, a fully-fledged member of her community. And so Jesus speaks these healing words to her. He says, daughter. Oh, she needed to hear Jesus call her daughter. Daughter, your faith, he acknowledges her faith, has healed you. He pronounces her healed. Now go and be relieved from your suffering. So, so Jesus calls her daughter, and as he does, he hands her life back to her. It's a beautiful scene. You know where Jesus was before this? You know where he was before this? You remember last week? He, he was out in the, the, the Decapolis. The, the, the most unclean region of Israel because the Gentiles and the pagans live there. So it's the most unclean region of Israel. And uh, he was out there and he came across a man, if you remember, who was filled with unclean spirits. Not just a few. We are legion for we are many. So he drives out these legion of unclean spirits into what? Into a herd of unclean animals, the pigs, a herd of pigs, ceremonially, ritually unclean. So he drives out, after driving out these unclean spirits into these unclean animals, he then leaves the most unclean region of Israel and he goes across the lake to the, to what? Was there a square inch of Israel that didn't need this kind of healing and cleansing? And so the, this, the next thing we know is that he's touched by this unclean woman and after he's touched by this unclean woman he goes off and he, he ends up by the time he gets to Jarius' daughter she's dead. I mean he's too late. She's dead. The professional mourners are there they're all wailing and crying and weeping and he goes in and he touches this unclean corpse he says, Talimathkum, little girl, get up, because of course in the presence of Jesus, death is like a sleep. So for, he goes from this unclean region with these unclean 
spirits to, to, this, to this unclean woman, to this unclean corpse. Jesus has been walking through a valley of dry bones. He's been walking through this valley of death and cursing and uncleanness. He's been, these are the people of Israel crying out, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. And Jesus says, no, no, I can, I can make you clean. Jesus says, I can bring you home. I can bring you back from exile. You know, this is the interesting thing. It's that Jesus, instead of being, being contaminated as he walks through this valley of death and cursing and uncleanness, as he walks through this valley of dry bones, instead of him being made unclean, uh, instead of having to rush off to do a ritual cleansing, and, and uh, instead of having to wait for the allotted time to elapse so that he could now be clean again, he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus seems to transcend this clean, unclean economy. He, he seems to transcend that, and instead of being made, he can't be made unclean. Instead, he seems to be the one who can go around making other people clean. Now, to you and I, that may not mean much, but for a people in exile cut off from their God, under the boot of a pagan army, they're, they're thinking, wait a second, if this guy can make these individuals clean, maybe he can make all of Israel clean before God again. Maybe if this guy can bring these individuals back in from the cold, bring them back in, uh, bring them back in from exile, maybe he can bring us all back from exile. See, this is, what, this is why I said that... Um, a philosophical discussion about whether uh, miracles can happen or not in the abstract is, is, is really not that helpful. It doesn't bring us in view of what Jesus is doing. Uh, this, is, this is why I say that even if, if we could point to miracles today, this still doesn't bring us in view of, of the announcement that Mark is making here. This just doesn't do it. Um, that if someone came along today and, and they started performing the exact same miracles that Jesus performed back then, they're not going to mean the same thing. These miracles mean what they mean because of the narrative world in which they appeared, in which they happened, and in which we read them. Um, look, if, if someone came along today and, 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 they, and they said, look, uh, I, can, I can cast out demons. And by the way, there are people with, within Christianity who do that in the name of Jesus, but there are also people in, within Hinduism and Islam and all sorts of places where they do this casting out of demons. Uh, whether those are real or not, I, that's another question, but here's the thing. If someone comes along today casting out demons, doesn't mean that any of these people can, can make us one of God's own people. If someone comes along today healing diseases, there are Hindu healers, New Age healers, there are people who heal in the name of Jesus, there are Christian. It doesn't mean that any of these people can make us clean before God. If, if someone comes along today and says, I've raised from the dead, you know, that, you go to Barnes & Noble, there's a whole stack of books, different, different authors, all piled together. There, there was like a month or two ago, I walked in, there's a whole stack of books piled together by people who have claimed that, that they've died, they've been dead for several hours, and then they've come back to tell the tale. It doesn't mean any of those people can bring us back from exile. These miracles mean what they mean because of the narrative world in which they take place. And that is, these miracles read in the narrative context, that is precisely what these miracles are about. They're about the one who can bring us home. They're about the one who can bring us back from exile. So if you're here this morning and you're like, no, 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 miracles happen all the time. Well, well that's fine. Or if you're here this morning and you're thinking, no, I, I just... I don't believe this stuff. I can't wrap my head around this miraculous stuff. I just don't get it. That's fine too. If that's, where you, if that's where you're at, that's another conversation. I hope we can have that at some point in time. But for now, I just want you to hear this announcement. I want you to see the logic of Mark's gospel and hear the announcement that Mark is making. And, and, and here it is. Back in the Valley of Dry Bones, 
God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Um, this is the answer to the question that kind of triggered all of these miracles. Do, do, do you remember what happens when Jesus calms the storm? What do they say? Remember? Who is this man? What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man? And so as Jesus has gone from the unclean spirits in the unclean region to this unclean woman to this unclean corpse, the disciples are getting the answer to that question. As Jesus has, has gone walking through this valley of dry bones and they're coming alive behind him, he is answering their question. As Jesus has been giving these people's lives back to them, as he has been making these people clean, as he has been bringing, bringing these people back from exile, they're getting the answer to their question. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Oh, I, I realize that a valley of dry bones is not part of the Western narrative world. We not only bury our dead, but I think we tend to bury death itself under a mountain and a series of uh, stories and symbols which are generally more optimistic and more triumphalistic than Israel's ever were. A valley of dry bones is not part of our narrative world, but perhaps it should be. American travel writer Bill Bryson describes his visit to the uh, Capuchin monks mausoleum in the, in the church of Santa Maria. He says this, In the 16th century, some monks had the idea of taking the bones of their deceased fellow monks to make their own valley of dry bones. Half a dozen gloomy chambers along one side of the church are filled with dry bones which, with displays such as altars made of rib cages. Shrines concocted of skulls and leg bones, ceilings trimmed with forearms and wall rosettes fashioned from vertebrae. And in some corners stand complete skeletons of the Capuchin monks looking like the grim reaper in their hooded robes. 4,000 monks contributed to the display between 1528 and 1870 when the practice was stopped. And along the outer wall are signs in six languages with the cheery sentiment, we were like you, you will be like us. See, it's not just Israel, but the whole world, which is in exile from God, like the demoniac, like the bleeding woman, like Jairus' daughter, like Israel, without Christ, all of us end up with dry bones, hope gone, cut off. It's not just Israel, but all of us who need to touch the hem of his garment. It's not just Israel, but all of us who need God to walk through our valley of dry bones. It's not just a demoniac or the bleeding woman who needs to hear Jesus call them son, daughter. Maybe you need to hear that today. I don't know how dead you already feel inside. The Bible says that we're all dead in our sin. But Mark says Jesus can breathe new life into you. I don't, I don't know how mired in sin your life is. I mean, maybe you really know how mired in sin your life is and you feel like everyone else knows and, and you're outside. Mark's announcement this morning is Jesus can make you clean. I don't know how far from God you've gone. But the announcement Mark makes this morning is that Jesus can end the exile and bring you home today. If, if that's you this morning, if you're out there, the invitation is come home. Come home. 
It's lonely out there. Jesus can bring you home. Let's come before God in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for sending your son who walked through the valley of dry bones and made him come alive behind him. We thank you for sending Jesus who handed these people back their lives, who made them clean. Not just the power of a but it's not just the power of demons and disease and death, but the authority. The authority to hand our lives back to us. The authority to make us clean. The authority to bring us back from exile. Father, I pray for our friends here this morning and, and maybe others who are not here, who are out there in the cold, who say their bones are dry, their hope is gone. We are cut off. Father, I pray that they would come. That they would come home, even today. If that's you this morning and you'd like to talk to someone about coming home, about Jesus bringing you back in from the cold, then I'll be at the front to, to talk with you after the service. So, Father, we, we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're dismissed.